Good morning, and the conversation continues here on 94 WIPL Sports Radio as we ease on into WIP Sunday, a chilly, rainy WIP Sunday it promises to be. So no matter where you go, take your umbrella, take us with you, and you'll have good conversation and hopefully stay dry. And when we come back in just a bit, a local author, Dr. Benjamin Nero, Doctor of Medical Dentistry, has a memoir, a memoir of growing up in Jim Crow America. That's the way it was. All this and more when we come back here. My name's Peter Solomon. More in just a bit. And we're back. And I'm pleased to welcome. Okay, I'm not sure what that noise is, but I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Benjamin Nero, Doctor of Medical Dentistry. Good morning, Dr. Nero. Good morning, Mr. Solomon. How are you today? I'm fine. And please call me Peter. All right. Okay, thank you. You can call me Ben also. Okay. All right. Thank you, Ben. Your new book. Tell me about it. Well, uh, I, I, I think I've thought of this for a long time, probably um, in my young adulthood. Uh, I was the youngest of uh, eight children who grew up on a little farm in Mississippi. And um, my parents are older when I was born. My mother's in her 40s. My dad is in his 50s. And I saw them, uh, their lives changing so dramatically around me that uh, uh, I wanted to do something to to honor them and to remember them because they were just the most wonderful people that I had ever been around. And I decided to write this book that covers my family entirely and uh, covers their relation, their relationship with us over the years that they were with us. And um, I was encouraged to do this because in my practice I had a number of youngsters who were having problems with school and with relationships and in families. And uh, I would talk to them and I'd tell them how I started out and uh, as time went on uh, they'd go to college and come back and talk to me about what they discussed some of these things in college and they'd say you know what why don't you write some of this down because that is interesting stuff that you that you've gone through and uh, that's pretty much the way it started all right what years are we talking about that are covered in the book uh, through from 1930s through um, the 80s when I was in uh, in uh, dental school. All right. Yeah. What was it? What About was 50 it? Year coverage. What was it like when you were growing up? Well, it was it was wonderful as I, as I look back on it. Uh, my father inherited a 51 acre farm from his parents. My paternal grandparents were slaves until they were teenagers, and uh, when they were free, they started buying up land. You could buy land for 25 cents an acre, but it was land that was uh, swamp land and not cleaned up very, very well. So my grandfather and his uh, brothers cleaned the land up and uh, started farming it. And uh, and when they, my grandparents died, they doled it out to their, their children. And my dad inherited 51 acres and, and the rest of the, uh, rest of the, uh, the uncles and aunts got the same thing. Uh, we were cotton farmers. Uh, that was the, the big product of the day. Uh, that, uh, that's what paid the bills and bought the clothes to go to school. And uh, eventually we had a car to drive when I got to maybe when I was about 10 or 12 years old. We lived about three miles outside of Greenwood, Mississippi, which was the town in which uh, we went to school. And uh, we had to, to walk those six miles a day down a gravel and dirt road to school and back. And uh, we did it because that's the way it was, which is the title of the book. That's what we had to do. Uh, we didn't have school buses. The white kids did. And uh, our neighbors, by the way, were white. We had two close neighbors there uh, to the left and right of us. And um, 
they had school buses to ride, and oftentimes when we were walking to school, sometimes they would wave to us, and I don't know what they were telling their, their schoolmates on the bus, but they would wave to us, and we'd wave back, but they went on, and we went on and uh, got dusty and did whatever we had to do, but we got to school and, um, and, and learned to do it that way. With school? Racially segregated or racially yes, mixed? Yes, it was. Yeah, totally segregated. I graduated from high school in 1956, and uh, it was still segregated, segregated then. We never really, uh, we never really talked about that, uh, Peter. We, I, I don't think that uh, we had any desire to to unite. We, I guess, it was so far fetched. It was something that we had just never seen in the South, and uh, so we didn't discuss it very much. We were, we were very happy. Uh, uh, going to school the way we were, and uh, with uh, with our uh, schoolmates and whatever, and um, we just never. I've I've talked to some of my schoolmates, classmates uh, recently, and we never really discussed that uh, going to school with white kids. Now we had an older neighbor who, our grandfather, uh, one of the neighbors who was white, he would come down and and talk to with my dad in the yard periodically, and. I, I loved to, to sit around and listen to their conversations, and I remember him saying, uh, my dad's name was David, he said, David, um, you know, one of these days, uh, the white kids and the black kids are going to be going to school together right here in Greenwood, Mississippi, and my dad, it would, uh, I, I, I think he was, I'm not sure whether he was astounded as he sounded, but uh he, he did uh, act that way, and he says, sure enough, uh, Mr. Buford, absolutely. He says, I know, because I study human nature. I never forgot that. I must have been maybe 10 years old. I could never get that out of my mind. He studies human nature. He thinks this is going to happen, and uh, I just didn't see it coming. Uh, however, uh, because my neighbors were white, uh, those are my playmates until I, um, well, they were my playmates at home. I went to school and played with, uh, with the black kids and uh, because there was all those around me then. But they were my playmates, and uh, we got along extremely well, extremely well. They were, they were people who uh, respected me, respected my family. Uh, we never had uh, any problem. We had a problem that would pop up every once in a while, but nothing that got uh, out of hand because my parents were people who, who understood the race relations and uh, they were respected by these people. Uh, my parents were educated people for the most part. My daddy was a college graduate. My mother attended college. Our neighbors, the white people, uh, had not. They, one neighbor, one head of the family probably hadn't gotten past the fifth grade and the other one, I think, were high school graduates. So they had a lot of respect for us and, and we got along very well. When you went to school, was the building adequate? Were the books adequate? Uh, the, the buildings were adequate. The books, early on, we, uh, we got the books from the white kids when they'd finished using it, when they had changed the editions. And I know one of my neighbors, uh, Nell, uh, she, uh, uh, I told her one day, I said, Nell, guess what? I've got the book that you had last year. Your name is in the cover. Oh, yeah, Ben, that's the book that I had. So we would use the white kids' book after they had finished with them. The buildings were, were adequate. And uh, my uh, first year in high school, uh, we built a new building, had a new building there. And uh, we didn't have the supplies that the white schools had. But um, we had what we had were dedicated teachers who loved us, who were nurturing, who wanted us to succeed. I don't know where all these people came from, but it seemed like they were showered down from heaven. And uh, it really helped us out a lot. It helped to... to 
developed those youngsters who didn't have the, the parents at home like I did, and they, they really pulled some really great things out of these kids, my classmates, my schoolmates, that probably could not have happened under other circumstances. And that's part of the book is dedicated to them, too. I mean, mention their names uh, and what they've done and uh, how they helped us through some very tough times. Ever encounter any people wearing white sheets? No, I did not. Uh, I did not put this in the book. Uh, my mother and I were riding down to Fayette, Mississippi once, and um, uh, that's her. That's where she was born. That's where Medgar Evers was killed. And we were riding down a two-lane highway, and the, the, the trees on each side of the highway, they would overlap the highway. And I looked up there once and uh, as we were driving, and there were four black crows hanging by their neck from a limb. Mm-hmm. And I said to my mother, I said, Mother, what is, what's going on here? She says, well, this is probably a warning uh, to somebody. Uh, there has been a hanging someplace, or uh, there will be a hanging someplace. So you just, uh, you know, don't dwell on it. Uh, we don't live down here, and we were just going down to visit my aunt. And uh, I didn't hear any more about it. But uh, those are the kind of things you run into. But I never saw the Klan functioning. I knew that there were Klans when in the area. Uh, but uh, we never saw them in action. So no white sheets, no flaming crosses. That's correct, yeah. <laughs> that, 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 that's good. That's yeah. good. Ever one, other thing, one other thing, Peter. Um, whenever we had one incident in the book there that I wrote about for our neighbors, who we, we liked a lot, we got along, but sometimes the girls would get into little incidences. And this one day, um, my sisters and the two uh white girls who lived near us um, got into an argument about something and they went home and, and told their mother and I think they really stretched it out a little bit and and my and the the father wasn't home and he came came home later and all of a sudden we saw him coming down the road he was raging and cussing and you want to live here near me and he was living on the land that my grandfather had um, previously owned. He was a sharecropper there. You want to live by me? I tell you, you don't leave my kids alone. And on and on and on. And my mother met him at the gate, and uh, she got right in his face and controlled him and, and dealt with him. And uh, and he went back home. And um, later on uh, that day, we I think it must have been a Saturday, and my dad wasn't home. Uh, he came back down, and I was taking a nap, and he woke me up and said, Ben, this is Mr. Brooks. I want to apologize to you. That woman up there, she's going to get me in all kinds of trouble, referring to his wife. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And he went on and on. And he apologized to everyone in the house. And the good thing about that was my dad wasn't home, and uh, had my dad been home, it might have been a very, very different matter because my dad would protect his family. Uh, my brother, who was 10 years older than me, was standing on the front porch as everything went on, and uh, uh, I found out later that he had gone and gotten my daddy's pistol, and he was holding it up uh, above the frame on the front porch there, and my sister says, well, what are you going to do with daddy's gun? He said, if he touched my mother, I was going to kill him. And... Um, we, we we avoided incidences like that uh, with cooler heads like my mother. She was a mediator uh, in, in in that neighborhood, so to speak. The white families didn't like each other. They didn't they didn't hardly even talk to each other. And if I'd be playing with my friend Nell from from one family, and 
the other family wanted to come down and play with me. Well, they wouldn't come until Nell went home. They didn't. They didn't want to play with her, and she didn't want to play with them. Uh, so it was kind of a unique situation there. As you got into adolescence and your hormones started percolating, ever thought mm-hmm. about ever thought about wanting to date a white girl? Uh, I guess it crossed my mind, but it certainly was not Nell. Nell was like a sister to me, and she was the one who uh, uh, was closer, uh, closest to me. The other girls, the other Buford girls were not. They were a lot older than me. Nell was a year older than me, and she's a very attractive lady and young lady. And um, I mentioned in the book that she used, to, she used to wear these Daisy Dukes, these short shorts and and whatever they would call them. And sometimes I'd be at home uh, uh, washing clothes. My mother would go and help her neighbor with whatever she wants to do. And, and Nell would come over, and she would sit and, and talk with me and, and, uh, and uh, watch. The, she would never help me work, but uh, watch the things that I was doing. And, you know, she was an attractive lady. But it never, I never got to the point where I looked upon her as, as being somebody that would. You just didn't think about that. That wasn't uh, a part of my thinking. I don't know about everybody else, but uh, that wasn't part of mine, and certainly not with her. Uh, she was just like a sister to me. She ate, she ate meals with us. She, uh, she never slept over, but uh, we were just... Uh, very, very close, and um, no, it didn't. Uh, to answer your question, it, it did not. Other than she, other than the, the viewers and, and the ones that I nailed, I was mentioned, I didn't come in contact with other white girls. Uh, we live on a farm, and they live in the city, and they live on the other side of the, the city, and um, very seldom that we contact each other. My guess, though, is had you thought those thoughts, that wouldn't have been well-received by the community. Absolutely not. Uh, my brother uh, had to leave home because um, uh, a white lady um, alleged that he had said something or did something to her that was certainly improper at that time. And uh, a, a white friend of my dad has came out and said, David, there's a rumor going on in, over there in Greenwood that you're, that little David, he called him little David, that little David made a pass or something at this white woman. If I were you, I'd get him out of town. So my dad and my mother, they scrambled around, and they got him together, and they had to take him to another town to a bus station. And uh, I don't know how they communicated with uh, my relatives in Washington, D.C., but that's where he went. And he stayed there and uh, went to the NYA camp, worked there, National Youth Organization, I believe it was, and later joined the military and came out as a captain, and he was went through World War uh, II and the Korean War and came out as a captain. and. Did some very good things in himself. Went to law school, had several businesses in the country, and uh, he didn't let that hold him back. But those are the kind of things that you um, that you would run into. And uh, we escaped it because of my parents. Because that very nice white uh, friend came out and told my dad, "Look, you better get him away because they're they come thinking about coming out here." They never came, but my brother was gone anyhow. And you're listening to WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Benjamin Nero, doctor of medical dentistry, author of the new book, That's the Way It Was, a memoir, a memoir of growing up in Jim Crow America. Ben, please stay with us. I've got to run a few commercials to pay the bills around here, but we will be back in just a bit. The WIP Good. The WIP time, 717. And we're back. It's WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. My guest this morning, Benjamin Nero. Doctor of Medical Dentistry, 
author of the new book about growing up in Jim Crow America. That's the way it was, a memoir. All right. College, what was that like? College, what was that like, Dr. Nero? Hello? Is that me, Peter? Yeah. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. That's all right. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. I thought you were talking to your producer there. No. College, what, what was, the was question? It? College, what was that like? College? Yes. Yeah, I, um, I, I jumped around a little bit. I started out in college in Mississippi, a, 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 a black college, and uh, started a good academic school, which is where my parents wanted to go. And I got there and found out that they're – I got a football scholarship and got there and found out that uh, their football team was just not really uh, anything that I wanted it to be. They'd lost the game the year before, 106 to nothing. And uh, I called my dad. I played quarterback, and I was a punter in high school, and I had all-state honors. And uh, I just knew that if I stayed there, I would uh, I would run into some problems. And I called my dad and asked him, told him that I didn't want to stay. And I uh, I said, Daddy, uh, I'd like to go out in California where my sisters and brothers are. And, and I promise you that I'll get back in school and I'll do the things that you want me to do. And he reluctantly said yes. And uh, so I went back home and got all packed up. And he took me down to the uh, Troyway bus station and... Um, I got on the bus, and before I got on there, this man who I'd never seen cry before in my life, his tears were running down his cheek. And I think I cried all the way to Oklahoma uh, because I just hadn't seen that before. But I went to, out to California, and I went to Pepperdine for a while, and uh, I just things weren't happening fast enough for me. I, um, I had some things in mind that we'll probably discuss later, but... Uh, my grades started to sink because I was working uh, the graveyard shift at the post office and going to school during the day. And the dean called me in once and asked me about this, why were things, why, was, why were my grades uh, slipping? And he said, now be honest with him because we need to know. And I told him, I said, well, my parents are in their 70s now, and uh, uh, my father is. And um, I, I would like to get in a position to build them a home before they before they pass on because they've sacrificed everything they've had for us for our education for our livelihood and i'm the last one the others uh, were probably married at that time and i'm the last one and i want to i want to do this for them and it's just not happening fast enough for me because and i have to work and i have to go to school he says the dean says well let me just say this to you I don't know your parents, but I think your parents are more concerned about you taking your care of yourself now and getting a good education than they are with you rushing through and trying to build them a home. If I were you, and he said, if I were you, I'd take that, that, that advice and go with it. And, uh, we, you know, you've got to get your grades up or you're going to run into problems. Well, I, I did. I stayed there for a semester, and then I, uh, I just uh, – uh, my high school coach – had transferred to uh, a, a college, Division three college in Kentucky, and I wrote him a letter and asked him if, if he would consider uh, me coming and joining that team uh, because I played quarterback for him in Mississippi. And he said, okay, come on, I know what you can do. So I went there. I gave up all my credits in the West. I would, uh, you weren't supposed to go and transfer like that because you had to sit out a year but the school in the east that I came to was a very small school and no one really paid any attention to that and uh, I went there and um, didn't make the team the first year because 
the head coach didn't like the fact that I wouldn't play bull in the ring as a as a quarterback. You know, you get in the ring where, you know, the guys nail you pretty hard. And I saw one of my teammates get his ankle broken. They sent him home. I just couldn't go through that anymore. So I uh, I walked away from the team and and um, uh, went to uh, lunch one day and went to the student union building. I saw a sign up that says try out for a three act play. And I'd done some acting in, in high school, and uh, I said, oh, this is interesting. So I went and read for, for the play, and I got the second male lead role. He got a scholarship in drama for a year, and I didn't have to play football that year. Well, the team lost most of the game. They fired the coach. The new coach came in and gave me a scholarship, and I played three years. Uh, uh, I preferred playing football than standing on stage acting. That was that was too tough for me. And uh, But college was good. I finished there, and... Uh, Worked at the University of Kentucky up the road, not so far, and that's where the dental school was. And I was encouraged by people that I work with and some faculty in the dental school about coming to dental school. And and uh, I went there and uh, uh, for four years and and did a uh, one-year internship afterwards and a three-year residency and became an orthodontist, and which I've been very happy doing all of my professional life. During that time, whether it was on the bus to California or after, did you encounter the need to be in the back of the bus? White, oh, absolutely. White-only white bathrooms, white-only water fountains? Absolutely, yeah. I remember I was coming back from California once, and uh, I was coming through Arkansas, and uh, there was a big sign across the street that says, Welcome to Greenville, Arkansas, the land of the blackest soil and the whitest people. And uh, I chose not to get off the bus. I stayed on the bus until uh, whatever the bus driver had to do, and we took off again. Yeah, you're in Canada all the way. You know, maybe when you got out to New Mexico or someplace, things would lighten up a little bit. But uh, in the um, in the southeastern states and the southern states, there it was it was just not, it was hardly bearable. But that's the way it was. You had to live with it, and you know what the rules and regulations are, and uh, you do everything you can to. My parents taught me, look, if this is a rule, these are the regulations here. You have to obey them. And uh, that's what we did to stay out of trouble. Most of us, though, talking to you this morning, let alone listening in the at home, would think this was soul-crushing stuff, stuff that they never would have put up with. What helped you do it? I didn't understand the question. Peter, well, ask me again. Mm-hmm. Most of what you've talked about this morning sure. is really soul-crushing, stuff yeah. that would make a lesser person go down the drain, if you will. What helped you oh, get yeah. through it? Uh, the My parents, uh, they were there for us. Uh, we, uh, we, didn't, we didn't get into it. They were not ones who would teach us to, to talk about, to say things about other people at the dinner table at night. We were taught to love and to live and to get along with people. Uh, we had cousins who used to come out to visit us from town. And uh, we'd have uh, either one of our white neighbors would be playing with us. We'd either be in the pasture, be playing football or something. And they would get so upset. Why are those old white people always out here? And then the white people would leave as soon as my cousin would show up because they didn't know them and they didn't want to to associate with them. But the big problem, I think, Peter, in all of this is we don't really know each other. 
Now, uh, we live in harmony, basically, with two white families up until I was a, a junior in high school uh, and, and, and even a senior in high school. We live in harmony. It was an incident here or there. But we, I, I, I wrote in, about, in the book where Glenn and I and his father, his father was kind of a cow horse trader or whatever, and uh, he asked uh, Glenn, we were probably seven or eight years old, he asked my parents if I could go with them to an auction. And they said yes. I mean, his daddy was there, and he was there, and we went down there. And Glenn and I, um, he was white. We would be running up and down the stairs. We weren't paying any attention to the auctions, and we were doing whatever little seven or eight-year-olds would be doing. And I heard a white fellow ask Mr. Buford, Glenn's father, Brooks, both of those your boys? And Brooks said, yeah, yeah, both of my boys. Look at them. They had a good time, you know. And uh, I told my parents about it. When I came home, they said, yeah, he's, he's that kind of a guy. He says, if anybody had ever tried to do anything to you, he would have been all over him." And that's, that's the way it was. Uh, we, uh, we got along well because we knew each other. Now we don't. I would say sometimes to some of my patients in my office when I, had, uh, when I was in the Philadelphia area, I'd say, um, we, we talk about racial matters, and I said, let me ask you this. When was the last time you had a white family over for dinner? Your parents had a white family for dinner. Oh, never. Oh, when have you ever gone to a white family's house or a Spanish person's house uh, for dinner? Oh, we, we've never done that. We don't really know each other. We we get these ideas, uh, what we see and hear, we form our opinions, and they stay with us, and, and that's that's. That's one big problem that we have in, in the, the races getting along, I think. That's my opinion. What do you want us to learn from reading That's the Way It Was? Uh, pretty much what I just said, that if you get to know your neighbors, you, you work with people that are a different color, different race, you get to know them, you should be doing things with them, understanding them, relating with them, talking to them, find out what their lives are all about, and, and uh, stay away from the dinner table, putting people down and, and, um, and, 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 and doing these things to your children. Uh, when they have, when they are younger, they don't really care too much about race. It's just taught to them that they they should say this or that, say bad things about people. Uh, that's pretty much what it is. And I I've been really. My mother is biracial. My mother's father was white, and um, she was she lived in a white uh, household. Uh, a good part of her early life, and uh, I think that had a pretty good bearing. Uh, that shaped her life because she was able to relate to blacks and relate to whites, and she taught us how to do that. And we found it, and I haven't, uh, I haven't gone away from that ever in my life. I found that my success in life, life has been being able to get along with people. And uh, I, I credit that to my mother, to my father, and, uh, and the environment that we, that we came up in, our, our household environment. But when we went to school, it was different. Uh, uh, you know, you were, you were in, a, in a racist environment. You were, you know, you were among black kids. And, you know, some of the black kids have awful things to say about white people. And, uh, and uh, you know, I just didn't want to be, become a part of that. As you look at the state of race, race relations today in America, I mean, events like Charlottesville, for example, what are yes. your thoughts? Oh, it's, it's, it's horrid. I, uh, that breaks my heart to, to see this happening like that. Uh, it's, I thought 
by this stage, by this time in my life, that uh, those things will be way behind us and uh, not popping up again. But it's, uh, it's, it's here again. It's going to be around for a while. The, the, the mood of the country seems to be going that way. And uh, it's, 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 I, I, um, I have a hard time dealing with it, to be very honest with you. I, I see these things happening, and uh, I just, again, say, just why don't we try to know each other? You know, why don't we try to know who we are? Uh, what your black brother or your white brother's thinking and, you know, where he came from and what his problems are and what his needs are. Why don't we focus on things like that instead of uh, the hostilities that uh, that we see, uh, that we watch happening in the cities like that. And I'd like to say thank you to Dr. Benjamin Nero, Doctor of Medical Dentistry, for his new memoir, That's the Way It Was, a memoir of growing up in Jim Crow America. Thank you, Doctor. Been my pleasure. Thank you. My pleasure. And it's another edition of WIP Sunday here on 94 WIP. We'll be back in just a bit. The WIP time, 736. And you're listening to WIP Sunday. My name's Peter Solomon. We're into the home stretch. The home stretch, I'm inviting back a guest who's been here before, Michael Danziger. Michael is the author of Small Puddles, the triumphant story of the world's worst oarsman. Michael, ever. Ever. Can't forget ever. Can't forget ever. That's an important title. Um, and I'm inviting Michael back because he's in town this weekend for the Schuylkill Falls Regatta. And I want to ask him some questions about rowing, regattas, and a whole lot more. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Peter. How are you today? I'm fine. Why is the Schuylkill Regatta important? Well, it's, it's all part of the fall rowing season. Um, and... You know, I think, you know, looking back on it when I rode, which was many, many years ago, uh, rowing is such a slog, and it's so hard, and there's this, you know, there are, there are you know, five or six races in the spring, and I think it's really important um, for, um, you know, for the oarsmen to be able to have something to look forward to during the, you know, during the fall, for one thing, and also, it's a wonderful opportunity for spectators really to get a sense of this beautiful sport, this unique sport, this kind of oddball sport that people work so hard at. So um, it's a treat for the, for the rowers. It's a sneak peek for the spectators. Um, and the Schuylkill's always great because, well, except for today, it looks like the weather might not be so great. But, uh, you know, the head of the Charles was two weeks ago, and or, or a week ago, and... Um, it gets cold up in Boston sooner than, than it does in Philly. So then we come down here, and yesterday was gorgeous, and obviously, um, you know, Boathouse Row is so beautiful. Um, so I think the head of the Schuylkill is really, um, while it's not as big as the head of the Charles, it's the final um, sort of very traditional big head race during the, during the fall, um, and it sort of marks the end of fall training. And after the Schuylkill, everybody goes inside, and they start working on ergs, and they start working, you know, on the weights and running stairs. But it's really the last chance to row before the spring on water. Well, it's good to hear, though, that Philadelphia's not the only city that has regattas, because many people get annoyed, get annoyed by the parking problems, the traffic detours, and all the complications that a regatta on the Schuylkill brings. 
Oh, I did. Well, I mean, obviously, anytime you have an event, um, <coughs> excuse me, you know, there are going to be some complications. But I hope people aren't annoyed with all the wonderful people who come to town and spend money and all the um, and all the attention that's put on Philadelphia, and um, and and the, and the wonderful tradition that, that Philadelphia is part of. So it's just one weekend. Gee, I mean, there's plenty of traffic every day at uh, I don't know what you call the stadium where the where the where the Eagles play. It used to be Veterans Stadium, I think. Um, but uh, I think it's a small price to pay for the wonderful event, the camaraderie, um, and the pageantry, really, that is the head of the Schuylkill. Absolutely. Now, regattas and rowing often starts in high school for many young people. Right. Is that a good idea, or are kids in high school too young? Uh, well, I mean, there are, two, there, are really, there are two sides to that coin, Peter. The one is that these days in college, um, there are very, very few walk-on rowers. And when I went to Yale, even though I was a lousy rower, there were about 150 walk-ons, um, and who you know who tried out for the team. And now they're now they're just a handful. So if you want to row in college, um, and you want to have you know rowing be something that helps you get into a college that might not have looked at you otherwise, you're going to have to row uh, in high school. So there's sort of that pragmatic part. But then you spoke to the idea. You know, is it too early? Well, it might be too early because rowing is so difficult and it's so single-minded and there's so much burnout that there are a lot of kids who come to college having rowed for four years at, say, you know, Phillips Academy Andover or Belmont Hill or um, you know, probably Episcopal Academy in, in Philadelphia. Um, and they've rowed for four years, and, and usually by the end of their freshman year, they've had it, um, and so they quit. So. Um, I think there's something to what you say about it being a little bit too early, but I also think that um, you know the competition is so tight for these colleges um, that unless you row in, co- in high school, you really don't stand a chance. Doesn't mean you're not going to row in college, but you're not going to be recruited, um, yeah. and then that's something that can affect admissions that way. It's just you know there, there are a lot of moving parts. The schools you mentioned. The schools you met, the schools you mentioned, are all white and elite. Usually, um, is rowing a white elite sport? Um, excuse me. Well, I mean, what, rowing is 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 mostly a white and elite sport. However, um, there are cities like Boston that has something called Go Row. New York has an inner city rowing program. Um, and and I'm sure there are, and I'm sure there are several others, um, but uh, yes, you're right. There are, it's mostly you know a white uh, elite sport, and I don't know that the sport has done enough to really reach out. If you look in, if you look at the boats, it's not exactly the United Nations, and it's not you know there's not much diversity. So um, that is a that's definitely a problem. Um, However, there are, as I said, there are some cities who really are, are trying hard to, you know, to, to spread rowing. And what rowing, you know, gives anybody, no matter their background, is a uh, sense of discipline, um, the, you know, regimen, and also the idea of teamwork. Because if, you know, you, you know, if somebody misses practice, you don't row. Um, you, you just don't. You can't have seven people on a boat. So 
you know, the responsibility of being on a team and being in a boat is great. And that isn't, you know, a responsibility that only rich white people can sort of relate to at all. Um, but the, um, you know, both of your questions are great. The, the, the one about rowing in high school and the one about diversity, because on the one hand, yep, you're, you're absolutely right, but we're making, we're making efforts to, um, to sort of broaden it. And if you look at programs like community rowing in Boston, there have been national champions that have come from inner city uh, rowing programs, which is fabulous. That's but look in any boat, look in any boat at, you know, in the, you know, in the top 50 teams and you're going to see a, you know, a pretty, a pretty white group of people. Well, but it's good to hear that the efforts are being made. That's the important mm-hmm. part. Certainly if a young person, and it's usually men, although young girls are rowing too, aren't they? Sure they are, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. If a young person comes to their parents and say, Mom and Dad, I want to row, what would you tell the parents to say? I would, uh, well, I would say, how'd you find out about rowing? And um, let's find a place for you to do it. Uh, I've had two of my sons have rowed. Um, and now, of course, as my book says, I was the worst ever. Um, so they didn't have far to go to surpass their old man. Um, but I would say absolutely. One of the things that I might do is buy a concept two rowing machine. Um, and it's about, you know, $400. You can get them used for a lot less. And this is a machine. This is the machine that every coach uses to test the strength and stamina of their rowers. And in fact, colleges treat uh, ergometer scores almost like SAT scores. You know, if you get a below a 630, you can look at Amherst and Williams and, you know, in Tufts, if you get a below a 615, you're going to an Ivy League school. And if you're under 610, welcome to the University of Washington. They're sort of the pinnacle right now. So I would get them on a rowing machine, get on YouTube, learn how to do it. You can actually learn how to row on a rowing machine um, by yourself. And then if the child has asked their parents to, you know, to start rowing, and there's water uh, where they are, then I guess you can just go on and, you know, and find a, you know, an after-school program if they don't have one at their school already. Is this rowing machine you're talking about the kind that are usually available in your local gym? Yep, they're, 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 they're available in the local gym. And what Concept2 has done is really amazing in terms of business. And they've kind of become the number two pencil of rowing machines. Now, is a number two pencil better than a number four pencil or a number three pencil? I'm not sure, but if you're going to take a, you know, the SAT, you better use a, you know, a number two pencil. And if you're going to you know, submit a, a rowing score, it better be on a concept two. Um, and, and, and as I said, it, it, it might not even be the best rowing machine, um, but it's the ro- rowing machine that everybody uses. So um, you know, some people get rowing machines that actually have water, in their tanks and they're beautiful and they sound great. Um, and everybody kind of oohs and ahs when they look at them. But if you give them a score from that, they'll look at you funny. So the concept too, uh, which are made up in Vermont, um, as I said, they're, 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 they're way less than a thousand dollars. And the used ones are, are, you know, probably a couple hundred. We'll get you set. We'll get you set up for indoor rowing. Um, matter of fact, I think the indoor rowing championships, uh, that with it, where they have tens of thousands of people uh, are descending on Alexandria, Virginia this year. It used to be in Boston at BU. Um, people row for huge prestige to see who's best on the rowing machine in the world. 
um, and the scores are well known. So I would just go out and buy a buy a concept two rower uh, and get on YouTube and figure out how it's done. And then you know if you like it, um, you can you know go talk to local coaches, let them know how you're doing, and they'll let, and they'll there's always room for somebody in a boat. They'll make another boat for you. They did for me, that's for sure. Now you've come among other things to sign copies of your book, Small Puddles, the triumphant story of Yale's worst oarsman ever. But are you here also for other reasons? Well, I'm here to, I'm here to see old friends. Um, and I'm here to, um, I'm, he, I'm here really for three reasons. I'm here to sign copies of Small Puddles, to see old friends, but I'm also here to, um, to, to, to visit the Stepping Stone Foundation's program here in Philadelphia called Stepping Stone Scholars, Inc., which is a wonderful program that helps uh, inner-city kids, um, underrepresented kids, get into schools like Episcopal and Haverford and, um, uh, and the like, do incredibly well, get into college. But the really important thing, Peter, is get through, get to and through college. And at Stepping Stone Scholars, Inc., which has been around for, I don't know, 15 years or so, here in Philadelphia, the college uh, acceptance rate is in the high 90%, and the graduation rate is over 80%, which is astounding. So I'm here to I'm here to look at the program um, with with incredible pride. It is I have nothing to do with it anymore, although they were maybe inspired by the Stepping Stone Foundation in Boston. They have their own board, they're their own 501c3 organization, and they operate in a way that is. Um, most effective for all the idiosyncrasies of Philadelphia that maybe don't exist in Boston. So I'm here to watch, to get inspired by some great kids, sign some books, and see some old pals. Um, And hopefully stay dry. I don't know what the weather's going to be like today. Make sure you take an umbrella, please. Is it going to be brutal today? That's what I hear. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) I feel bad Uh, for you. I'm also here to talk to you, which is always a joy. Thank you. And I want to say thank you. To Michael Danziger for being with us this morning and giving us some different insights into the issues of rowing. His new book, Small Puddles. The triumphant story of Yale's worst oarsman, period. Yes. Ever. Yes. Thanks, Peter. My pleasure, Michael. Take and care, my friend. You too. And it's been another edition of WIP Sunday. Stay tuned for Sports Talk with Sunny Hill. Thank you to Phil Jackson, this morning's producer, and Ann Tithman Solomon, my associate producer. Couldn't do the show without you. Nothing left to say, but see you soon.